everybody. Welcome to What Would the Smart Party Do? Uh, we're back. Uh, the heat wave has broken across the UK. So we've finally been able to open some windows and invite some other people into our houses, or our virtual house at least. Um, I've got the usual suspects in tow today. Hello, Gaz. How's it going, mate? Very well, Baz. Good to see a break in the weather. Yeah, we were kind right. of um, hosepipe bounds were threatened at one point, which was kind of, that's going to be the end of civilization in the UK, if that sort of thing goes on. Pretty much, yeah. I know what you mean, man. No, it's nice to be able to sit in a room and, and talk without literally the sweat running down your back. So, but the sweat is slightly running down my back because I'm a little bit nervous because we've got a special guest with us today. Uh, a man who d- needs no introduction, but he's going to get one because I don't think I'll ever get the chance again. So a bit of a personal hero of mine, uh, the man who's responsible for half my bookshelf of RPGs, and that's only because I buy five of everything. Uh, <laughs> the man responsible for uh, such gaming gems as Over the Edge, uh, which comes at you twice, uh, Everway from the, the best decade in gaming, uh, the lead designer of the third edition of Dungeons & Dragons, a small independent publication you may have heard of, and it's bigger and better older brother, 13th age. Uh, Mr. Jonathan Tweet, how are you doing, sir? Oh, real good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us, and I know that most of the times when you're doing your podcast rounds, the inevitable first question would be how you got into gaming. Let's not do that. Let's work backwards. How was Gen Con? You've just got back from there. Right, uh, Gen Con is uh, pretty exciting. Uh, so the 13th Age Glorantha product is um, finally done and getting into the hands of backers. So backers were able to pick it up there. So that was pretty exciting. And then um, working on the Over the Edge Kickstarter right now. So I hung out a lot with Atlas Games people. I ran my first streaming uh, game on you know live on the internet. Uh, so that was exciting. And it's also, you know, like, as everyone knows, actual play is a great way to see how a game works. And you get to see me rolling up characters with people who've never played before and running them through their first session. So that was fantastic. And uh, I even got to demonstrate my card game, Clades. It's a science game with animal matching that teaches evolutionary relationships. And Atlas Games is doing that. And so, you know, I've just got a lot of interesting projects going. And, and uh, it's fun to be there and see the whole industry, see my friends and, and, uh, you know, meet the fans. It's really good. Cool. How has it changed over the years? Have you been going a long time to Gen Con? It's something I've never managed to get out to. So I'm always fascinated with the reports that people send in about how the hobby is looking. And obviously this is an industry showcase as well. What's different in 2018? Well, I think my first Gen Con was 1979, maybe 1978. Yeah. You know, and you could uh, tour the whole exhibit hall in an afternoon and, you know, right. And now, you know, it would, if you really looked at stuff, I don't know, it would take days maybe to get through the exhibit hall. It's so big. You know, when it, it started, you, you were sort of able to do everything, sort of look at everything and see everything. And, and now Gen Con is so big. The hobby is so big. There's so much going on. Uh, you know, you have to pick and choose. And so most of it, you know, you're you're missing. But there's all sorts of stuff that we didn't have back in the day, like cosplay and costuming are big in a way that they never were. Live streaming on the Internet is something Gen Con is just getting into with Twitch TV. And and uh, so that was new this year, I think. And obviously we didn't have that in 79. You know, and we've seen the quality of games go up over the years. I think Magic the Gathering was a real breakthrough like when they came out with a game and uh committed to having color art on every card like that that was crazy (laughs) compared to you know 
what anyone else was doing at the time, but it set a new bar for what a hobby game product should look like. And, you know, brought art front and center and made a lot of money for a lot of artists and made the industry prettier and sort of more professional looking. So, but then you, you might see a lot of, uh, a lot of old stuff is new again. So, you know, when I went to the first Gen Con, RuneQuest was new. RuneQuest was the exciting new game that lets you, even if you're not a thief, you have a chance to uh, climb the wall or whatever. And that made RuneQuest this exciting new game. And now here it is, 2018, and it's being released again by Chaosium to great fanfare and looks better than ever and has way more cultural material in it than the original did, which is sort of what it was missing. So, uh, Vampire is back. Uh, you know, Ken Height uh, led that up, and I can't think of anybody better to do it. And it looks like he fixed the mechanics pretty easily, and and uh, tons of new stuff, and then uh, old stuff that's new again. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be a bit of a theme. And you know, one of the themes of our show and our sort of our demographic, our audience, if you will, um, both of them, they seem to uh, to be of an opinion as we were that the '90s was a pretty golden age for gaming, post Magic. Um, you've been responsible for quite a few games that happened in that yep. decade. Yep. And it was kind of like, for me, it was role-playing adolescence, and uh, we started to stretch and see all kinds of new things. And, you know, much like a middle-age, maybe a midlife crisis, people are looking back to their adolescence, and there's yep. a whole bunch of stuff from that era that's coming back out, and it's shinier and new, and it's yep. and it's taken advantage of new gaming tech, which I think circles us around nicely to Over the Edge, perhaps. So, yeah. This is, you know, if, if myself and Gaz can get a house in order, which I think we can, we can get this cast into the ears of people before the Kickstarter ends just. Um, so do you want to give us your, your elevator pitch, please, Jonathan, on Over the Edge and why, and why people need to hear about this now in 2018? Sure. So uh, Over the Edge is my freeform game of uh, weird urban danger. So the, the Characters can be sort of anything you can make up, any sort of person you can make up from the modern world who comes to this weird island in the Atlantic where the the laws are oppressive but uh, sort of haphazardly enforced. And there's lots, you know, there's conspiracies and secret agents and alien contacts and lunatics and sort of all the crazy stuff that uh, goes into the, into the modern imagination all happens there. And, um, it's really different from other games in that it focuses on you creating a character sort of in a literary style rather than uh, picking attributes out of a list. So when you create your character, you are inventing the character's traits. You're not point buying them. You're not selecting them, uh, you know, with like a menu, one off of A and two off of B mm-hmm. or what have you. You're you're inventing, I'm saying something like, uh, I'm going to be a haunted private eye. And that's your main trait and then you talk with the other players and the game master about what that means and what have you but you're, you create your character the way you would create a literary character uh, and then um, even the features associated with the character are more literary or uh, action oriented play oriented rather than sort of procedurally oriented so for example uh, every character has a trait a feature called your trouble uh, and that is sort of the trouble that you regularly get into because part of the fun of stories is that the characters you care about get into trouble. This is where, you know, if if you're the character who is just too nosy and that's how you get into trouble, you wind up sticking your nose into things that you shouldn't. Uh, and then in, in sort of traditional role playing, a trait like that would be a flaw 
where maybe you have to make a saving throw against uh, curiosity and then you have to act a certain way. But in Over the Edge, it's really more like um, uh, an acting prompt that uh, everybody at the table knows your trouble is being nosy. And so the game master is going to invent circumstances where that's going to come into play or even other players are going to, you know, they know as players, they know the kind of character you're playing so that they can play to it. And so this is a game that in 92 really inspired a lot of people to put more story into their games, to be more free form and more open-ended in their gaming. And now it's taken sort of all the great ideas that, have come from other designers that were inspired by this game, like Vincent Baker and Ron Edwards and, and pulling their ideas back into this game. And they're uh, making it sort of now it really lives up to its potential in a way that I it didn't quite do in 92 because freeform gaming story oriented gaming is more mature. And, and I know how to do it better than I did 25 years ago. So, you know, it's sort of a game that started it all in, in terms of sort of indie Freeform role playing, and uh, now it's back and better than ever. Mm-hmm. I think one of the really interesting things about uh, the game when we first looked at it, I think Baz and I were at university at the same time, and it was around that sort of time we kind of gave it its, its first go. And it's the amount of content that was in there, and certainly compared to other games, uh, the background was just bonkers, right? Uh, right. In, in the nicest possible way, but there was just Thanks. so many crazy ideas already packed in there. You know, as yeah, so RuneQuest, you're a little bit yeah. kind of, what the hell do I do with all this? You know what I mean? Well, like RuneQuest was mostly system, right? It was long yeah. spell lists and long skill lists and then long monsters with all their stats and their hit locations. And I knew whatever I ate that up when, I, uh, you know, when that's the stage of gaming I was in. But I look for something a lot faster these days. And uh, and the great thing about doing a freeform modern day setting is that you can put anything in as a game designer i can come up with all sorts of crazy ideas and you might find them in some this weird city where everything's all the nightmares go to breed and all the weird stuff from the world sort of bubbles up and so yeah the, the game was it was and still is mostly setting mostly stuff that you can just read for pleasure and in fact put into use in sort of whatever system you use if you want to play fate or savage worlds or whatever mm-hmm. It's not hard to do. And and that's why the game is set in the modern day is so that people can in you know freely invent stuff and understand what it means. So that if the even if your game master invents, you know, something like uh something having to do with the Tibetan Book of the Dead or what have you, because that's a real thing, other players have heard of it before, it carries some weight. You don't you're not making up everything from scratch like in a fantasy world or a science fiction world or, or what have you. You get to pull in all the stuff from the real world and, and um uh makes makes the world richer. The um the background that you used in the in the nineties, which was the modern day then, was very much informed by pop culture. Yeah. And um but that, but obviously, that world of twenty-five years ago, the pop culture yeah. has changed massively in that time. I mean, yeah. I remember playing Over the Edge, and, and our games were informed by things like whatever was on X Files that week, or what we'd seen in Twin Peaks. Um, yeah. And we That's didn't right. have things like YouTube and cell phones and the internet. So, yeah. what's happened to Alamaja with pop culture? Has it made it harder? Has it made it easier? Well, that's a really important question, and in fact. Uh, when my buddy Chris Lights first talked to me, uh, like I, I didn't know him from Adam at that point, but he first got in contact with me a couple of years ago and wanted to know if I was ever going to do a remake of 
the game? And I said, no. Like, and part of the reason is, you know, everything that I did back in the early nineties, you know, before cell phones and before the World Wide web, you know, makes sense in that context, but in the world where you can get any information you want on the internet anytime and everyone's carrying around video cameras, how do you, you know, how do you have mystery? How do you have, you know, the unknown and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't, you know, I sort of didn't know how to do it. I also did not want to be derivative. Like I, I've never repeated myself in game design and I didn't want to sort of go back to something that was already good and try to, I don't know, you know, make it 10% better or something. Um, Over the years, I sort of, you know, figured out how I could do it. And what I do with technology is, you know, you can, you can find information on anything you want. Like if you, you know, you've got cell phones, the characters have cell phones, characters have laptops and worldwide web access. They can find stuff. They just, uh, they just can't be sure that it's legitimate information. And they know every time they're searching for something, somebody, whether it's the state or uh, conspiracies or something is, you know, maybe tapping their lines or finding out who they're searching for or what have you. And so you, you, you can use the, the, all the tools of the modern day, but they, they lead you to problems that become sort of interesting. And uh, so, and in fact, in some ways, it's nicer. I remember in 90s, like 1990, when we would play, the characters would have to make these laborious plans of how they were going to find each other at the end of the day after they split up, right? And if somebody found out something interesting, they didn't know how they could find those other people. And then we'd have to play, okay, well, I guess you're waiting around until six because I mean, like your friends and we'd have to roll. You know, it was just like, it was like real life. And yeah. and now we can just say, okay, well, you text everybody, you tell them what's going on, and you all meet at the cafe, and the action just moves right along. Yeah, yeah it, does, it does stop all of that, like, you know, having to go to the library for everything. Exactly. And the, well, so another thing that's changed is, you know, when I ran the original Over the Edge, everybody at that time was strongly influenced by Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it taught a lot of us how to play better, more sophisticated games and what have you. But it had this really terrible flaw that, you know, you had a percentile chance to find the clue you needed or you had a percentile chance to pick the lock you needed to pick. And so if you fail those roles, the, the plot stops. Right. And you can have in Call of Cthulhu, you can have a pretty unsatisfying experience sort of wandering around looking for the fun. But, oh, you didn't talk to the right NPC or you didn't make the right check or you you got to the general store at the wrong time and the guy you were supposed to meet isn't there and all these things that slow everything down I think uh, Vincent Baker really shook things up with dogs in the vineyard where in in, in that game uh, the characters are these sort of roving enforcers and when they come in sort of the Mormon wild west right when they come to a town the people the town come up and tell them what the problem is. Hey, we think old man Jenkins might be summoning demons or whatever. And then you're right in the plot right away. There's none of this nosing around trying to find what you're supposed to do. And so over the edge originally was sort of still like that. Like the mysteries were hidden and you had to like make the proper roles or talk to the right people to find the right information. And in the new version, you know, the game master is just coached to give the players the information that they need to move forward. Uh, they might get information that moves them forward into a trap or it might move them forward into something that's, you know, too big for them to handle. But 
but the plot moves forward and never just stalls around because people don't know something. And you can always look up what you need to know on, we call it uh, Reba Online. So Reba is the virtual assistant that the state provides. So anybody can talk to Reba at any time. They'll answer any questions that you have. You know, of course, that's the state monitoring you and keeping track of you with its algorithms and, and what have you. Um, but it's it's tempting you know, like you, you can you can get useful information. It's just you're also giving up information about yourself when you're doing it. I suppose yeah. the current political state in America has helped you with that, with kind of fake news and all that kind of stuff. Fake and news, yeah, that's right. All that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, it's, it's really easy to believe that the stuff you find on the Internet is all lies. Yeah. <laughs> and the earth's flat as well. <laughs> that's good. I think Cthulhu has... Um, I think it's the people that need trading with Cthulhu because uh, the new editions come out. It's a lot better than old editions, I think. Yeah, that's right. But it, but it still requires people to play it in the right way, like you say. And, and yeah. I've spoken to you know Sandy Peterson, Mike Mason, all these kind of guys about it uh, many times. And we all sort of agree. Really, it's just about it's the, whoever's running the game needs to make sure they run a scenario where yeah. there isn't. You know, you don't have to go for a plot dispenser or go yeah. to the right clue station and press that. So you can. But I think uh, a more free form game puts yeah. that front and center you kind of know you're talking about stories so you don't you don't need as much trading to do it right if you know what i mean or at least that's the way right. i see it yeah that's right yeah you, i mean it's it's easy to do it i mean coming from dungeons and dragons it was really easy to see how call of cthulhu landed where it was and i think you're right i've heard that the new edition is better about that and it really comes down to game mastering and, and scenario design yeah mm. one of the things that um i mean OBDH did a lot of things um, at the time to change people's perceptions of gaming. And one of the things it did for me was it changed scenario design in my head quite a lot. I've always enjoyed a role-playing game that's got introductory scenarios in it. it gives me an idea of yep. what the designer was intending. It's like a template yep. that I can use to write my own stuff. Over the edge introductory scenarios, you may not even remember all these years later. But <laughs> I read them and I, I remember shaking my book thinking, where's the rest of it? Where's the maps? Where's the NPCs? <laughs> the whole book is the scenario. And, yeah. one, and the scenarios were things like you go out on the town to try new drugs and we'll see right. what happens, dot, dot, yeah. dot. You, you arrive at the airport, let's see if you can get through it, dot, dot, right. dot. Those <laughs> campaigns in, in Over the Edge. So I was never worried about failing a role in Over the Edge because you, or if you just st- stood still as a character for five seconds and looked around, plots would come and get you and drive yeah. you off on their motorbikes. Yeah, that's, I hope that's still the case. There's just so much going on. It's that's glorious right. to get involved in that. Yeah. So that's right. There's stuff going on on every level. Like on the street level, you know, there's hustlers and, and villains and artists and dreamers and what have you. And then sort of the mid-level, there's uh, people doing all sorts of machinations. And, you know, there's there's um, crime and 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 gangs and uh, what have you. And then at the higher level, you know, there are these ancient conspiracies and mind controls and plots against humanity and entities from beyond space and time, you know, it's, it's, uh, so it's, it's all, it's all there for you to plug into at what, whatever level. I think it's got some iconic stuff as well for anyone who's played it anyway. I mean, these words might not mean anything to anybody else, but without even looking back at the books, I remember yeah. the Throckmorton device. Yeah. And, you know, back in Kergillians and Mr. Lafay yeah. and, you know, there's just like, I could stream off 20 things that, right. Yeah, just half a page in the book, but you know, twenty years later, I can still remember with crystal clarity. You know, really, just just packed with solid ideas. I think you know, good fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. That was the beauty of running the game is that 
or, or writing it is that I could, I could write a scenario really easily because it didn't have to all be spelled out and it didn't need a map and it didn't need, you didn't need to know how much money each person is carrying because you're not going to mug them or whatever. And so it just made it really easy to focus on the literary aspects of the, uh, of the game. And then every, at every table, the characters are going to bring so much to it that I can't even tell you how you're going to run your scenario. It's mm-hmm. going to depend on who these characters are. So all I can do is sort of uh, provide a playground and provide examples and, uh, and and what have you. And it's really up to the to the table to make it all happen. And is, yeah. there, is there any kind of progression in the game? So you mentioned players, for example, have a, or the characters have a trouble. Does that develop yeah. or get more complex as time goes on? So the number one thing that sort of develops, um, there, there's an experience system where your procedural abilities can get better. You can learn better to do the things that you're trying to do. But the focus is on uh, your trait called a question mark. And so your a question mark is it's sort of like a dramatic pole in Robin Laws's uh, Hill Folk. Um, it is uh, a part of your identity uh, that is going to become part of play either um, to be tested, you know, and and successfully or to be challenged and transformed. So, for example, if, you're, uh, if your character is honorable, then everybody knows that part of the fun of watching your character is going to be seeing that character's honor tested. So, like, what things are you willing to do for your honor? Or is there anything that's going to make you act dishonorably? And the great thing about making it a question mark is the other players at the table don't necessarily know how you're going to act. So, like, in, in, you know, early Over the Edge or any game from that time, if your character was honorable, everybody at the table would look at your character when they were acting and know that they were going to act honorably. And if your character didn't act honorably, they wagged their fingers. Hey, you're not playing in character. You're supposed to be honorable. Well, the fun of watching a literary character, a character in a movie, is that they have an arc or they have a, a you know, you don't know whether they're going to be honorable or worse, like it's the honorable guy who finally is dishonorable but for the wrong reason and you know and now it's terrible or the honorable guy who finally is willing to do the dishonorable thing in order to save the day or you know what have you and so with with the question mark the players have the you know the explicit freedom to sort of uh go off character because that's that's the trait that's going to come into question during play. And if you stay honorable the whole time and make all sorts of sacrifices to stay honorable, that's fun to watch. And if you become dishonorable and go over the deep end or whatever, that's fun to watch. And if you, if you do one dishonorable thing and then are plagued by it, that's fun to watch. And so there's just more dramatic uh, possibility and your character develops that way over time. We were, we were enjoying a conversation with Greg Stoltzy uh, a couple of oh, months yeah. back. Um, and a very similar one as well. And he was telling us about the new Unknown Armies, yep. which I think, you know, shares a sort of strand of DNA with your game. Uh, oh, yeah. A, a hell of a, a sandbox to mess around in. But at the end of it, despite all of the flash and the fun and, and everything else you've got going on, those games, your game especially, just seems to be about actually what characters do. Without yeah. the characters, you're reading, you know, a very entertaining rough guide to a city that you can't visit in real life. And it is, it's hilarious and frightening and sinister and, and very, very entertaining. But it's yeah. what the characters do in it. That, yeah. uh, this is going to be true of all role-playing games to a greater or lesser extent. But without good characters, 
these games don't fly. Um, but yourself and, and Greg have, have written two games where you can't help but have characters do cool stuff. It was a, a good, yeah, that, that was that's, the intent, right? That's right. Like if you think about a dungeon adventure or whatever, your character doesn't bring that much to the game, right? No, no, expected to. Right. Uh, you know, you're going to kill the kobolds one way or another. And that's what your character is going to do. Mm-hmm. But in Over the Edge, you know, there's a lot of material in here that's ambiguous where, you know, you read about a group and, you know, maybe a, a conspiracy. Like there's a, some example of a, there's a potential ally in the game who, you know, might might be able to help you in your fight against like paranormal enemies or what have you well, it could be sort of like the cavalry or someone that comes in from the side but the, but instead of in and in the in the 1992 version they were actually sort of the good guys who come in every once in a while and help you in the new version yeah they might help you but it's really just sort of like a sport fighting a spectacle that's being put on for the purpose of people in another dimension who are mind controlling somebody to use weird weaponry to go destroy paranormal creatures. And that's handy, but they're not there to help you. They're, they're there to put on a show. And this guy who's helping you is actually under the influence of these, you know, parasitic creatures from another world who like to be entertained. And so how do you deal with that? Do you sign up and maybe join them? Do you try to, you know, get this guy loose from his mind control so that he's free or is it like, well, he's doing good work. It's okay. You know, it's, there's more ambiguity and that means there's more room for the characters to decide how they're going to interact with the setting. And I want to say one quick thing about Greg Stolze. He was in my uh, original over the edge campaign back when I was playing it just for my friends and I was intentionally making it too free form and too weird for anyone to ever publish. Okay. <laughs> right. And he, yeah. He was at the local college and he heard about my game and um, I really only wanted friends to play, but I thought if he played and I did terrible things to his character, it wouldn't bother me if he didn't want to speak to me again. Cause I didn't know him. So <laughs> I invited him to the game. I did terrible things to his character. He thought it was great. He became a game designer <laughs> yeah, that backfired somewhat, but to all of our benefits, yeah. I think. <laughs> it did not work out the way I intended, but I'm very happy about it. We still see each other at Gen Con and what have you. Sure. So you managed to publish two unpublishable games. You've, you've done it twice, this unpublishable game. It's back out again because you funded now, I, I believe. That's right. So that's right. we're all going to see it again, this unpublishable game. Have you have you no sense as a game designer of what's publishable and unpublishable, man? Because your games keep keep working out quite well, don't they? Well, I mean, I have to say it was a real surprise, right? Wow. Like, uh, you know, the uh, and, and in some ways, I've got to admit that I um I balked a little uh, back in uh, the '90s because the way I ran the game, there were no hit points, um, there was no damage roll, right? It was all it was way more freeform than that. But I did not have the capacity to explain to somebody how to do what I did. Like what I did was all intuitive and came from years of like, I'd already been playing a bunch of freeform stuff for a while at that point. And so I sort of backed off and said, if people are really going to understand this, they're going to need something to hang on to. And rather than me writing for pages, trying to explain how to freeform things i added a hit point and damage system and whatever and maybe it would have been less publishable if i had published it raw but the 
But now it's totally publishable. Right now the industry has changed. People yeah. understand freeform games. Like uh, X-Files came out a year after Over the Edge, right? So now everybody totally gets investigating the supernatural and whatever. That's all normal. Um, <laughs> all the... You know, all the young adult stuff has turned into weird dystopian stuff or supernatural stuff or what have you. So, you know, it's it, it was ahead of its time in 92, but it's a solid representation of sort of the weird dystopian paranormal stuff that now is just a regular part of pop culture. Yeah, I think we have a mainstream now, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I think we had a weird point in role-playing, um, kind of when the, the Indian, inverted commas, movement came out. I know the, the Collective Endeavour, as they're called in the UK, they published a bunch of games, all guys in the bedrooms doing their own little thing, and the sort of like the move to story games, and yep. Ron Edwards made the unfortunate comment about people who played the Indian brand and all that. It was kind of almost a schism, but we've all come back into one happy family now. But I remember around that time, Rich Stokes, who wrote Umlaut, Game of Metal, a game about being um, like Swedish metal bands or something like that with the text yeah. had to come on that and it was great but when he was writing that book he was sort of asking me and saying that stuff when you gm what is it like and, and there's a sort of an attempt at that time to try and write it down it's, it's the same thing you were talking about thinking that you know how you gem but that comes from years of experience and playing with a bunch of different people and experimenting and trying things trying to put that in a text to explain to someone else and go here's 20 years experience i'm going to write for you <laughs> just now learn this and do it i mean yeah. it's quite a tall order right but i yeah. think like you say with people have caught up a little bit more now because of the range of games we've had right. different experiences i think there's a more common language across the board which yeah helps. yeah i think the whole industry uh is becoming or has become sort of a has a broader approach to gaming so story is more uh readily accepted and free forming and what have you you know it's just um it's less locked down than it used to be Sure. But talking of um, rules, I just want to bring in briefly, actually. There was a, a card game as well called On the Edge, which was yep. based on Alamar yep. as well, uh, which you, you wrote. Uh, I thought it was really good. It, it's, yep. I recall it was about the time when Magic had sort of started picking up stream, yep. and it was when people were getting really serious about it, and pay, yep. people paying cold, high cash for cards, yep. and cards were held in double sleeves, and everybody was really careful about them. And then On yep. the Edge came out, and it had stuff like, you have to tear this card up to use it, or you have to draw yep. on it, or you have to throw it away, or the yep. collecting number becomes the power. Yep. Um, and that was really good fun, but the thing I remember that me and Baz played it and a few other guys at universities, it seemed really tight as well, like the system seemed to work really well, yep. even though yep. it seemed to be almost a, a kind of backlash towards Magic and the way it was going, right. yep. to be more about fun and what games were supposed to be. But yep. I think even so, the game was really tight. Yeah, yeah, it... it- Certainly, of the games of its era, I, you know, it was it was really good. Um, you know, Magic was so good that the other games that came out after it sort of failed to copy it, copy what was good about it, right? And yeah. and uh, like Over the Edge was one of our uh, the On the Edge card game was one of the few cards that had like a card cost. A lot of cards, you know, mm-hmm. like Spellfire, or whatever you would uh, super deck your. You know, your better card and your worst card didn't have a cost, and so the better card was just playing better. It was a really silly deck building. Um, so, yeah, I, people loved that game. Um, I know people play a lot out of it. I, I played a lot, and, yeah, it, it, it held up pretty well. Uh, yeah, and lots of people still love it. And so if we can find a way to do it, I know Atlas would be interested <laughs> in doing it again. In the meantime... Yeah. 
you can pick up a whole bunch of on-the-edge cards, starter decks, and displays of expansions uh, as an add-on to the, the Kickstarter. Really? Ah, right. This I did not know. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Well, that's part of the interview. We just got off on the internet for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, just I think it's just starter decks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you get, there's tons and tons of cards. Wow. Okay. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I had no money back then. I have no money now, to be honest, but the little <laughs> money I did have then, I can't believe how much of it I've handed to you through through the medium of various other people. Yeah. I appreciate cards it. Boosters. So, you know, thanks for that. <laughs> you know, I need people like you to support my career, right? Like, if it weren't for you, where would I even be? <laughs> <laughs> so, what's um, from a, from a design perspective? Then, I mean, we've talked about over the edge, and it's 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 gone back to the freeform roots that you wanted to have in the first place. But alongside that, you had a, quite a crunchy card game, and I know that on your design CV as well, you know, role playing is is one of the types of games that you've had a hand yeah. in designing. What you've done all different kinds of things. It's very difficult to categorize the sort of stuff that you do. That's I, right. I can find a couple of little threads that run through it, but. What's your personal preference? Do, do you like to play and GM in high crunch games, freeform games, or what's, what's your card gaming and board gaming preference? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, obviously I'm a giant systems geek, right? Mm. And uh, <laughs> love Excel spreadsheets and numbers and, and, and curves and probabilities and what have you. And everybody saw that in, you know, in, uh, in Dungeons and Dragons third edition, uh, where everything was finally rationalized and straightened out and, you know, mathematized and calculated. Um, my personal preference is to go way more free form. So, you know, I yeah. started playing over the edge for my own amusement back in 1990, you know, invented that didn't have a name, you know, it was just the game I was going to run for my friends. And that's pretty much what, you know, it's what I'm doing now. It's very close to what what I was doing then. And, um, you know, I've just, I've rolled lots and lots of dice in my day. And now I really want the dice rolls to matter. You know, like I'm, it's not as interesting to me, you know, as it used to be to roll to hit. And then, you know, I hit or I miss, and that's a small amount of damage. And in the big scale of things, it's not going to make that big a difference in the, uh, in this battle or this battle's not going to make that big a difference in the scenario. And so, you know, whether I hit or not at the moment, I'd, I'd rather hit than miss, but in general, I don't care that much. And, you know, I'm just tired of rolling dice that I don't care that much about, or worse, my friends roll dice that I don't care that much about. Then I'm just watching. <laughs> so, right. So for over the edge um, in the new version, lots of action gets packed into a single dice throw. And so, when when somebody goes to make their dice throw, a lot of times everyone at the table stops and watches because that single throw is going to determine whether the thing they're going to they're trying to do succeeds or fails. Yeah. You know, does the does the plot go in this direction, like it's moving forward because you succeeded, or does it go in that direction? It's moving forward in a bad way because you failed. That I'll that I will watch. Right, that's interesting. And so you know the. Freeform system just means that you can move through things so much quickly. Like, you know, the new system doesn't have a combat system. It's got a conflict resolution system, and combat is one sort of conflict, but there's all sorts of conflicts you can have. Yeah. And so you're you're playing the game, and it is seamless. You get to a crunch point where the plot's going to go one way or another based on a dice throw. 
but you're not stopping modes to go into a new mode. Like lots of games have a story mode where you're talking about what your characters do and a combat mode where you're maybe moving miniatures on a grid even or what have you. But the, the two modes are separate. And, and um, I prefer, I, you know, if, if I want to play fighting, uh, there's great fighting games out there that are, you know, miniatures games, skirmish games. Um, and if I want to play role-playing, I want to focus on choices the characters make rather than, you know, how much damage I did this round or that round. I mean, I'll play, if you're with the right people, all sorts of stuff is fun. But my, my clear preference is for, um, is for something freeform and faster. Cool. Sure. So, as I think you said from the D&D kind of angle, uh-huh. I think well, a few people have said this, that um, 13th Age is kind of my kind of D&D. Yes. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll chuck in one of the questions from one of our generous patrons who keeps us on the air, you know, yeah. Gao. And, and he was saying that 13th Age, from his point of view, has got a, a bunch of what he considers to be revolutionary mechanics. Yeah. So things like the escalation die, the yeah. one unique thing, right. um, or icons, all that kind of right. stuff. That's right. Uh, it was a little bit curious in, in terms of what you thought, in terms of if you could pick one of the things you introduced that was perhaps oh, interesting. regular D&D, like what would be your... What do you view as the revolutionary thing that you've introduced there? Oh, that's a great question. Of all the revolutionary things that we introduced in 13th Age, which one is the best? Which is your one unique thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you're exactly right. Like 13th Age is, okay, if we're going to roll 20-sided dice to hit or whatever, let's have more writing on that role and let's make the roles more exciting and let's give the combat, uh, you know, uh, an energy and a, and a, a um, maybe a direction. And a, uh, so that, that's exactly right. I think out of all the things, I really like the icon relationships because they, they connect you to the, the game world, sort of the way, you know, vampires clans connected the, if you're a vampire member of a clan, you're part of the game world for that reason. That was based on my work on Houses of Hermes, where if you're a wizard in Ars Magica, you have a house, and that reflects your place in the world. And I stole that idea from Chaosium and RuneQuest, <laughs> where they have cults that shape your... Like, this world of Glorantha really taught me how to write a world and how to create rules where the world comes into play. And so the, the icon relationships is really like that. But I... I think if I had to pick, I would go with the one unique thing okay. because the one unique thing is just something that you like over the edge, you invent something freeform about your character that doesn't come off a list and it's not a point by, and it's, it's about your connection in the world and what you can do and how people treat you and what have you. And so it's really wide open. And it's, I guess I really like it because it is such a violation of the way, you know, Dungeons and Dragons has traditionally been done where, if you create a first-level dwarf fighter, it's pretty much like a lot of other first-level dwarf fighters. And if you take that character to uh, an official tournament, everyone will be able to look at the stats and go, yep, this is legit, right? But the whole point of 13th Age is, no, what you're going to experience at your table is different from what anybody else is experiencing. And your character is different from any character that anybody anywhere in the world is playing, and that one unique thing really can be picked up for most any game, you know, it's, um, and it just sort of demonstrates the, the power of free form imagination where, um, you know, you can play a computer game and they'll handle 
D20 rolling for you and you can fight dragons online all you want. And it's faster and in full color with sound effects. Mm-hmm. So what, what can we compete with? What makes our characters cooler than a, 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 an online character? Well, it's because you can invent whatever you want for your character. And so it's just, it was my idea of how to demonstrate to everybody playing the power of your own imagination rather than, you know, whatever the, the schemes that the game designers have laid out for you. True. I, can I ask you a question about one unique thing? So yeah. I play quite a bit of 13th Age. It's absolutely my favourite thing thank to you. do. <laughs> you don't, don't thank me yet. I may write a game based on it, which might undermine everything you've ever done. <laughs> 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 but with one unique thing, I've, I have found, and I think there's a thread here that goes back to Over the Edge as well, I have found that some players will bounce off of the idea of having to come up with a one unique thing. It yeah. is hard for some people to do that. Yeah. And I remember that in Over the Edge as well, you did another little thing which which I've seen people um, bounce off of. They get over that hurdle eventually. You insisted in Over the Edge the first time around that people draw a picture of their character. Yeah. I remember that. And I remember that you put in the advice as well. You did something about it makes the neurons fire in your brain. Yeah. I don't know if that was just a joke or that was serious, but I've I've made people draw their pictures. <laughs> oh, yeah. I made yeah. them do it, and none of them thanked me for it. And now I'm making people come up with the one unique thing that isn't that they're the emperor's bastard son. Right, right. how many of them there are right. running around, and I don't, I don't, they don't thank me for it for about five minutes. But when it clicks, when people get over that first hurdle, yeah. they are so super invested in what is essentially a first level character that's only ten yeah. minutes old. It's unbelievable right. what it does to the brain. Yeah, it, that, thanks. That, that's right. That's I have never heard someone make that connection before, but yes, that's right. Those are. Not everybody wants to uh, draw their character. And in fact, most people resist drawing their character. And that's why I said the thing about how it creates an, uh, an extra neural loop between your motor neurons and your visual cortex or what have you, which I think is true. Like, I, I don't know. I, 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 He's going to print it now. <laughs> I think it's at least close to true. Um, but yeah, the one unique thing um, – some people can bounce off of that. And now Rob Hainso, he's my best friend and creative partner on 13th Age. He um, he tells people uh, one very special thing. Like, it doesn't have to be unique. It doesn't have to be that, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, so I've, my the character that I rolled up last night uh, is a cleric who can uh, speak to the spirits and what have you. But, you know, I, it's not the only – I'm not the only person in my clan who can speak to the spirits. But – it's still unique in that nobody, no other person is playing that character. No one else is um, playing the character with my vision of who they are and what they're doing. And even if they're not unique in the world, as player characters go, they, they're unique. And yeah, telling people that it's special uh, rather than unique can help or just making them do it can help. We found <laughs> that like kids are really good at this. Cool. Right? Yeah, because yeah, they come... Yeah. Right. Like they don't know what role playing games are exactly. They don't know what they can and cannot do. And so for for them, it's sort of uh, liberating. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm you pointed at two things where people are sort of challenged. And I think you get you get a reward out of it. I don't I find it really I find it fulfilling to look around the table and see people's drawings of their characters, like even if they're terrible. Um, there's something about the character that comes out in their pose or, you know, what have you. And, um, yeah, so I make my players do it. 
I have to let you. Uh, sorry, guys. I, I, I have to. I have to get in a twenty-five-year-old story when I can. Um, <laughs> a good friend of ours, Jules. Hello, Jules. You will be listening, I'm sure. He he professes, like many people do, to not be able to draw a straight line, um, even with a ruler. Um, yeah. And he, I remember he really balked at this, yeah. uh, but we absolutely forced it upon him, and he, and he drew a picture of a hat stand. Um, but then, you know, his unique concept after that was that he was a master of disguise. So I thought, well, fair play. Yeah, have that one. I, I do remember all the overhead scenarios you run, actually, Baz, and he, he ended up with um, that master of disguise. He was kind of like, he'd just be a lampshade in the corner. Yeah. Like the, yeah. you know, the guys would burst into the psychiatric ward room to find where he'd gone. There'd be like a lamp there that wasn't normally <laughs> there. But obviously none of the workers like even thought about it. But so, uh, yeah, it was, it was brilliant. The other story yeah. I was going to tell, well, we, well, we're telling our war stories. Yeah, tell, yeah. But it's, it's funny how, depending on the game, people will be more inclined or disinclined to do stuff like that as well. There's a game called Monsters and Other Childish Things, which is about kids with their imaginary monsters who yeah. try and help them out. But, you know, when you've got some creature from non-Euclidean space and, you you know, you tell it, I wish that dog had shut up and he goes and turns the dog inside out. That's kind of like not what you wanted. But one right. of the conceits of the game is that you have to draw your monster and people test that like a duck to water. You know, I've been in, in pubs in the city centre with a bunch of middle-aged blocks, all with crayons and glitter, drawing, yeah. drawing their monsters out, uh, yeah. not a care in the world. Yeah. But then you put them in a different game and say, draw your character, and they're like, oh, I don't know, it's a bit weird that. I don't, I don't know what to do. It's like, come on, guys, two weeks ago, you were up to your um, yeah. arts and crafts, you know. <laughs> What's the oh, but, but monsters are so easy because you can't get them wrong. Right. Well, I used to draw monsters all the time as a kid because it's like, well, the arm's too long, whatever, that's fine. But (laughs) but humans, humans are the hardest because every person has a really clear idea what a human looks like. If you draw a human wrong, everybody can tell. So that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, maybe I'll let them off. So I did hear a great story from somebody online about the character drawing business. He said that uh, he, you know, didn't really want to draw his character. Did anyway. Thought it was cool. Started drawing more things. Now he's a professional game illustrator. Wow! Wow! So I feel like if a hundred people, a thousand people, thousands of people have to painfully draw their character, but it means <laughs> a couple of people out there find a new career and a new meaning in life. Okay, that's great. Obviously, the neurons did connect for that guy. <laughs> He read a broken clock right twice a day, so that's you know it worked for those guys. So um I just flicking through the questions we have from other people as well, where we're talking about artistic yeah. things. And I think Everway was quite an artistic game, if you will. Yeah, uh, and Everway. We, everybody wants to know about Everway. We've we put the questions out for our audience. That's all yeah. they want to know about is Everway, which is fine by really? me. Really? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yes. So one guy in particular said, um, I'll put you on the spot again, but yeah. he said if someone hired you to do Everway again, what would you change about it, if anything? If you yeah. start again, knowing what you know now, like right, that's a real um, and and you know uh, that's not that's that is something I have thought about because it's a real possibility. Ooh. I know that people who have the rights to the Everway game, uh, oh. they live here in Seattle, and I've been in contact with a couple of people who would be interested in trying to make it work. So it may be that the next '90s game that I revive will be Everway, and I think the things that. Uh, Everway needs is uh, more support for uh, sort of more support for the game master. I think I wrote Everway sort of hot off the heels of Over the Edge, and I was really into freeform stuff. And I, I don't think I appreciated 
how much uh, uh, Everway relied on, you know, a game master who really knows what they're doing. And, uh, and I think this next time around, I would be a lot more, a lot more hands-on in helping people see how to play the game and how to resolve conflict. Um, you know, like I had all these uh, fortune cards and there's like a secret pattern to the fortune deck. Uh, and that, you know, the, instead of rolling dice, you draw a card from this fortune deck, sort of like a tarot deck, and it would, you know, determine what happened. But And it could have a, an astrological symbol on it, and it could have a, a reference to elements on it or what have you. And uh, these all related to the secret pattern. And, well, no one ever figured out what the secret pattern is, and lots of people miss the details. And, you know, I think I would be a lot more explicit about you know, what does this card mean? What, why does it have the symbols on it that it has? And what, how can you use that to interpret it? You know, the, one of the features of the Everway was you would get these vision cards, these cards that represent fantasy scenes from across all sorts of cultures and times and what have you. And you'd use those to create your character. And the game masters would use them to create settings and what have you. There was a set that we were going to do next that was going to be the the friends and lovers set. And it was going to be all mostly pairs of people. Right. And then, uh, you know, but uh, maybe they're fighting back to back or maybe one of them's injured or maybe they're doing something together or what have you. And then, you know, it'd be men and women, men and men, women and women. And everyone would be like, well, they could be friends. They could be lovers. Anyone could do whatever they want. And, 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 you know, the original Everway had lots of, like individual characters, you know, here is, here's a, an African looking guy from an, a noble family. Here's an African looking woman from a noble family or whatever. And there, and, and the thing that we were about to do before the line got axed was, you know, do something that was more about people connecting or relationships or what have you. And I think that would have been really strong. So I would, I would certainly look into doing something more like that, bring more of that um, content in. But, you know, I would, I don't, it seems like it would be pretty easy to rewrite the, um, you know, I had a much better, a more freeform system in every way that would not need the same kind of rework that uh, Over the Edge needs. That's true. Yeah. Would, would the art be a challenge, though? The rights? Just, I mean, that's business talk, I guess. But, you know, back then, you, you, I mean, that, that game so, must have been quite hard to get published. It's another difficult it, to publish game. With just, it, it was... It was certainly pricey, and we would have to figure out how to do the art. The you know we've got all the original contracts for the artists, so okay. most of that we would be able to just reuse again and just continue to pay royalties. Uh, and the art holds up really well. Oh, it you does. Know, it um, really does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it was all sort of so so outside the regular medieval fantasy realm mm-hmm. that uh, you know. Now people talk about inclusion and, and people of color and women in art or whatever in every way in 95, right, was already there and absolutely. sort of in spades. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I, that's, I would be really happy to see that again. And a lot of people, you know, it would be totally new and still look fresh. And so, yeah, it's definitely a possibility. I know that Monty Cook has put, uh, they've got a magical deck in their um, in their games that, you know, with really with cool cards and uh, mystic meanings and what have you. I think it's a great idea. I could mm. totally see it again. So in terms of games 
is there a game that's got away? Is there, is there something you've liked to have designed at some point over your career that you've you never actually got around to or you couldn't get off the ground? Or have you been lucky enough to like produce everything that you wanted to? Oh, I've worked on a lot of games that never never went anywhere. You know, because in the in the game cycle, uh, when I was working at Wizards of the Coast, like if we had an opportunity to do a licensed product, we would have to start on the figuring out how to do the game before any contract was signed. Because if you waited until the contract was signed, it was too late. Yeah. So like I did, I don't know, we worked on G.I. Joe, Joe and Narnia and whatever and stuff that just didn't go anywhere. If anything, my regrets are the things where I did get to have my way and it didn't work out, right? So like Rob Hainsaw and I worked on Dreamblade, which is a weird miniatures game, and it had it had a lot of challenges going for it. And some of the stuff it did was really cool. I, you know, like uh, I think it's a great game to play if you're just using a small number of managers to make your war band and you want a fun skirmish game, I think it's great. I don't think it held up very well to uh, tournament play for a variety of reasons, but there is a game where it's like, Oh yeah, we, we totally did get to do it. And now that it's out, we see what, why it didn't succeed. That's, those were where my regrets are more. So that's the stuff that, that, that maybe has got the regrets, but um, you're also, you're also the man who got the call to do Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. So talk about highs and lows, right? So taking you back a little bit, I mean, this is yeah. a while ago. Well, sorry to keep bringing you back 20 years. No, no, it's great. <laughs> right? No, I've had a great career. It's been oh, terribly fun. Um, what was the emotional journey like from being approached to write Dungeons & Dragons, to lead yeah. design on that, through yeah. to it actually getting out to the public? And now with the benefit of hindsight, you know, yeah. what does that look like, that chapter in your life? That was really uh, an amazing couple of years because things came together in a way that, that you know they'd only come together rarely so peter atkinson had founded wizards of the coast and and we had a ton of money from magic and pokemon and we bought tsr and dungeons and dragons back when you know they couldn't get any loans from the bank to print more product and if they can't print more product they could make money without money they could paid loans to the bank. And so they were sunk. And so the president of the company is like a big D and D goober from way back. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I was by that time I had been playing D and D for like 20 years. Yeah. Um, I guess I had been playing D and D all that time, but certainly I started playing D and D 20 years earlier. And so we had Ryan Dancy running the, the brand and he was, you know, he's the visionary guy who brought us the open gaming license and the D20 license. And, you know, he's the he set the price for the player's handbook at 20 bucks instead of 30 so that no one would have an excuse not to buy it. And we would get all that sell in. And, you know, it's not that often that everything comes to line. I got to work with Monty Cook and Skip Williams. And uh, obviously they knew D&D really well. And Monty was he's a great writer with a great imagination and. Um, so, you know, it started, um, I sort of got involved, like I became the lead sort of backwards. I joined the, I joined the team, but there was no lead. It was such a, such a plum project that nobody could be the lead kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so, and then we couldn't resolve creative differences. And then Peter Atkinson rightly got frustrated with our lack of progress and he sort of 
took over and ran things for a while. And, um, and then when he went back to running the company, which is really what a CEO should be doing is running the company. When he went back to that, he put me in his place as the lead on that team. And that's, I think mostly because by that time, the mechanic that we had come up with was the mechanic that I had brought to the project to roll a 20 sided die and add, an ability bonus and a skill bonus, basically. Um, and that's sort of the universal dice throw system in the game. Um, so that, that had been mine. I'm a big systems guy, like in a way that Monty and Skip aren't. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it turned out great. And then, you know, we had Todd Lockwood and Sam Wood doing art. They were fantastic. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just all, all came together great. Yeah, it's, it's incredible to think that, you're the guy who came up with D20 plus something. That's, yeah. There was a time when that wasn't the case, right? That's, that's, that's bizarre. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to remember that there was a time when that wasn't the case, right? Like, yeah. it, it seems so natural now. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, I'd been hacking my way through different games for a long time. By that time, I, you know, I had... I had redone the D and D rules in like when I was 16 for my home campaign. And then, uh, you know, I was mucking around with other game systems, uh, through college. And then our that's the game of wizards in the middle ages that I did with Mark Reinhagen. And, uh, we released that in 87, I think the end of 87. And that, that had roll a die add a ability bonus and add a skill bonus because, mm-hmm. By that time, I figured out, hey, this is really what these systems all boil down to. Yeah. 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 So talking of uh, Ars Magica, or Ars Magica, as we say in the news. Uh, however. You know, however yeah. you want to pronounce it. Uh, another of our loyal followers asked a couple of questions around that. And, Great, yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the questions we've got, I'll, I'll chuck them both in together and let you answer as you will. But yeah. one is, how, how do you do it as a one-shot? And he's kind of like... That, that's the sort of thing that he's, he's wondering about. And the other sort of follow-up to that, which I thought was quite interesting, he was saying, how well would it do if you wanted to run Doctor Who with it? So, like, instead of the mage, you've got the Doctor, and then you've got all the companions and followers and so forth. Yeah, so, yeah. Think to that. All right, well, I'll do the Doctor Who one first. I mean, that that sounds very similar, right? It's the one, one sort of powerful person and the support staff is sort of what you see in Ars Magica. The key in Ars Magica is that the, the wizards, the Magi have all sorts of, um, all sorts of stats for what magic they can do and they can invent spells on the spot. And they have this big complicated system that lets them, you know, like I I want to uh, start a fire out of nowhere and I can look at my stats. Any wizard can look at their stats and sort of figure out how hard that would be and roll the dice or what have you. And that really holds everything together. You know, a lot of my games are freeform, but our Smogica really gets held together by its structure, by the rules. And um, so you would, if you had Doctor Who, you would need something like that for the doctor. Obviously the doctor doesn't have that sort of stuff. The, The whole point of, the magic system in our Spagica is you can create wizard after wizard after wizard. They're all different. They do different things and they fight in different ways. They protect themselves in different ways and they have different relationships with the elements. And so if you wanted to, if you wanted a format like that with, uh, with Dr. Who, you would just need to make the doctor interesting enough. That's crunchy enough to sort of fill that really fill that role. Sure. Yeah. As for a one shot, I mean, you know, I uh, I came up with the starter set format for um, 
Uh, boy, what was that? The Stormrider Storm adventure yeah. back in the yeah. day, right? Yeah. It's got pre-generated characters. It describes how you, uh, you know, the first time the characters make a perception check, it describes how to make a perception check, right? It just really handholds the Game Master through their first bit. It's got really cool uh, Jeff Menges uh, art of the characters and what have you. And so that's a great one shot if someone wants to play Ars Magica and show people what it's like. The last one shot I did was, you might be surprised, Freeform. Uh, <laughs> I had to run Ars Magica for, uh, for a convention and it was about the, the wizards uh, of, from the Order of Hermes are sent to meet this legendary wizard who left Europe as a young man and is now back with secret powers and they travel through this uh, tower to meet the guy. And it's all about how he was bringing back secularism and uh, <laughs> analysis and the scientific method and everything that had been supernatural was now being reduced bit by bit to, you know, to the pedestrian. Right. And so like, uh, and it was pretty complicated. Like every level was tied to a star with a different number of points kind of. And so it was pagan magic and dia- divine, like diabolical magic and whatever, but it was all being reduced to uh, just pedestrian stuff. So, you know, you went to the, the, the three sided level, uh, the level that was that was defined by a triangle. That was the Trinity, and you met these priests or whatever. But now they were just sort of like counselors who would help you with your personal problems and <laughs> what have you. And and uh, I don't know. So so to do a to, to do a free form adventure meant sort of breaking the rules and doing something really different from you know getting the grogs together and going into the underworld somewhere and trying to find magical supplies. Sure. So, I mean, looking at, I, I said earlier, I was trying to find a thread between some of your games. And, oh, yeah. Uh, when, when you look at Ask Magica all the way through to 13th Age uh, and all the stuff that's happened in between 13th Age and Glorantha even, it's very difficult to find the threads in the designs. But yeah. the one thing I've noticed, I'd, I'd love for your opinion on is, yeah. it seems to me that the stuff that we see as the general public, the stuff that gets released is very often a collaboration. Are you oh, yeah. a natural collaborator with people? Yeah. You've got Robin Laws with yeah. Over the Edge. You had that team doing D&D, yeah. which was maybe necessary. I, I don't yeah. know. But yeah. collaboration seems to be your thing outside of a couple of bits and pieces. Is that, is that fair to say? That is very fair to say, and it's a good, uh, uh, good observation. So like our Smagaka, I don't think I could ever have done without Mark. Hmm. And uh, Over the Edge was inspired by Robin Laws' writing in a, a fanzine called uh, Alarms and Excursions. Yeah. And uh, he even just provided material for me when I was running the campaign for fun. You know, he would write me letters with, you know, put this place in, do this, you know, here's some weird drugs. And it was like, it was all just good fun. And um, yeah, Rob and I really collaborated on 13th age and you can see it in the rules. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, you know, we have different styles and we, we seem to have the same kind of high standards about the same sort of thing. So we can write in ways that each of us likes in a way that's really hard to find other people that can uh, approach game design the way that we do. So, yeah, I definitely am a, a big into collaboration. And, um, and with Over the Edge, I even took pains to include a collaborator, Chris Lights. Hmm. So he's the fellow who put the bug in my ear years ago about doing an Over the Edge redo you know i've got a 
I've got a particular style that I've developed over the years, um, which is to really pack every paragraph with something. Every paragraph has to carry its weight so that if you cut the paragraph, you would really be missing something. And if the paragraph just sort of elaborates on something that you, the reader already knows, then I cut the paragraph because a game master can elaborate on what they already know. Every Everything that we provide as designers has to continually provide something new that they wouldn't be able to come up with just on their own. And, and sort of, it was a lot of work to get Chris on board with that style. It's not the way most people write. Um, but I really wanted to have another voice in the game. He added stuff in the game, like the, the mouthless synth androids that, you know, are, uh, um, they, they are the servers on this mysterious subway car or, you know, train car that, that's a meeting ground for all the different conspiracies or what have you. And I would never, wouldn't have put that stuff in on my own. And so that was, that's what I looked for to a collaborator for is to expand what, what I'm able to do and to, to bounce ideas off of and whatever. So yeah, I'm, I'm very collaborative. So, uh, so who would be your dream collaborator then past or present? You know, is there anybody, anything coming up where you're going to pay you or put you in a triple with, with what's the next big thing coming from the mind? Boy, that is a, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good question because there, there are people that, uh, I sure admire their work, but mm-hmm. I don't know if we that means that we would collaborate well on a product. Okay. Right. And so I don't know. I really like Ken Height stuff. It'd be great to work with him some. I've you know, Robin obviously did great stuff for uh for Over the Edge and mm-hmm. uh you know, I would love to to be able to bank on his creativity again sometime. It's a it's a really big it's a really big question. I don't have a clear answer. It sort of depends on the project. Right? Well, there's, like a, there's more candidates now than there's ever been. Um, you, well, yeah, you that is for sure. That, you know, you, yeah. you've pulled ideas from some of the story gaming movement of the last twenty years back into Over the Edge. You've got, yeah. you know, you've got um, Jason Morningstar, uh, just yeah. one example, just pops immediately to mind. You know, the, the guys who just release stuff which is just dripping with cool ideas. It's hard not yeah. to collaborate, even if you never meet them. Right. The, the yeah. So Jason, Mark, yeah. yeah, thanks for bringing him up. He's a great example of, you know, someone whose work I admire. Uh, and he does a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. So I could he, I could imagine that we could uh, find something to collaborate on. Vincent Baker taught, yeah. taught me a lot about role-playing games. And he also has a, a range from, you know, the very formal to, to very free form. And, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting question. <laughs> so I can tell us when you figure that one out. Another question might be then is um, are there any games you play that do you just play your own stuff or is, is there anything you've picked up that you, you run out for other people? Uh, so, you know, mostly when we're playing, we're playtesting something. Uh, we've just started a 13th age campaign, which is unusual in that I'm not the GM and neither is Rob. It's one of okay. our the guys in the group. Um, and, uh, so we would get to play and we're not really play testing anything. So that's, but again, that's 13th age. That's something that we're playing because we all know it. Um, I, I have tried to keep, uh, my or in a little bit. So I think I played fiasco a couple times with the guys and, uh, by Jason Morningstar and Hillfolk by Robin Laws. Uh, we, we had, so Hillfolk is a great freeform game that has no way to, 
keep an, an, an obnoxious player from ruining everything. <laughs> and which we found out. And, <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, I mean, I've got a way to stop obnoxious players, but I won't write it down. <laughs> it's uh, no witnesses kind of way. Of no, exactly. That's what I heard from my friends, is that <laughs> an obnoxious player who's drinking too much can throw things off. Sure. Um, so, uh, oh, Vincent Baker's got a weird game called King is Dead that's uh, sort of a take on Game of Thrones. We, we played that with the group. So, you know, I don't have enough time to get into a big campaign who does just right like that's not feasible but uh but i try to play the the cool new stuff that's out there sure so i mean it's not just role playing stuff either is it you, you've done a couple of other little bits so you've got something yeah. out of the minute grandmother fish yeah i was a little bit about that because that's completely different than playing over that's there. completely different and that's another place where i collaborated to really great effect so my daughter's 23 but when she was little i wanted her to have a book that would explain to kids where we come from that would be appropriate for a kid her age all throughout history all over the world little kids have heard stories about where we all come from and i you know kids today deserve that same story and that story for me is grandmother fish it's the story of how our our ancestors evolved over the last 400 million years starting with the earliest jawed fish and uh, so this is a project that, like I said, I started it when my daughter was little. Uh, and then um, I worked on it, worked on it. But it is super hard to write a children's book. And it's mm-hmm. super hard to write a book that gets the evolution science right. And so, you know, I worked on it, but could not get it over the hump. Like couldn't get it from good idea to good manuscript. And then uh, finally in 2013, I was literally you know sitting in my hot tub whatever thinking about rituals as the origin of language and and mimicry among like shamans and whatever in tribes long ago and i realized that in my the way to make this book work is to have the kids mimic the sounds and actions of our ancestors so they wiggle like a fish and they hoot like an ape and what have you and and scientists call that synapomorphy right like we have hinged jaws because our ancestors have hinged jaws and all the animals with those hinged jaws are, we're all descendants of those earliest jawed fish. Um, so that jaw, having a jaw like that is a synapomorphy. So similar, similar form. And so this shows that, you know, the way we walk and the way we grab and the way we make sounds and breathe and whatever, like all those capabilities that we have, we have those capabilities because our ancestors had them hundreds of millions of years ago. And so by, by having the kids do the mimicry, suddenly they really get pulled into it. And I've seen kids, you know, start out not knowing what the story is about. And then, you know, by the end, they're crowding around me while I'm reading the book or they're, you know, pointing at things like, you know, it just works like magic having kids do these sounds and motions. And that's the, was sort of the key that I needed all this time. And so once, um, once I had that figured out, well, then I had to publish my the book that I've been working on all this time. And I, and, uh, I found an artist. Uh, she really made the book better. She helped me with the wording. Um, you know, she she her drawings were better than what I was asking for. And together we developed it out. And yeah, it w- without her, the, the book would not have been as great. But we raised money for it on Kickstarter, sold out. And then we had 
three different publishing houses all bidding on it, trying to be the ones to get the rights to it. And then we decided to go with Macmillan. And within Macmillan, there were multiple imprints that each wanted to have the book. So, you know, we're on the line with publishers. You know, they're telling me what they would do if they got the book and what have you. And so that was a really exciting time where something that was a labor of love for a long, long time you know, turned into something that's now being published around the world. It's available in the UK and Australia and it's an Italian translation and pretty soon Chinese. So great success story. I love the, the theory of evolution. I love the way that we are connected to all life on earth and kids love to learn that. Um, it's, yeah, it's been, yeah. the parents tell me like it, it's my kid's favorite book or I have to read it every night or it's the first book that my kid tried to read or, you know, it's um, kids really kids want to know how things fit together and, and they want to know where we come from. Right. And, and sure. that's the story of evolution. When you were, when you were sort of getting to publishable station with people like Macmillan and the other publishers, did they care that you had anything to do with Dungeons and Dragons? Is that a world that they no. even understand? Totally. Because so, <laughs> you've been in publishing a long time, yeah. and publishable games. But yeah. when you're talking to children's books of people like Macmillan and worldwide stuff, it's a different game altogether, right? It, it is. It is. They, <laughs> I mean, the publishers said it's really remarkable to pick up, uh, pick up a book like this and not to ask for any changes. Ah. Right, not to ask for any changes in the text or the art or what have you. Yeah. And you know, she said something like, "You know, we've just never seen this before with a first-time author." But then, of course, <laughs> I'm not really a first-time author, right? <laughs> um, and so, while they didn't care that I had done Dun- Dungeons and Dragons, they sort of understood that. You know, I, I come from a career of presenting complicated ideas to young people to fire their imaginations. And that's sort of Grandmother Fish does. And have them join in and be part of the story. Exactly. You sort of role play being a fish and you role play being, you know, an early amniote. The amniotes were like the (laughs) reptile-like creatures that uh, could lay eggs on land instead of in water. And then from there, right, the rest is history. I've only just got my my gamers to draw things. I can't have them role play to be amniotes. That's where I was going with that. Uh, I'm worried the new version of Over the Edge has people pretending to be Kergillians or something. I don't understand. (laughs) Well, the important thing about the the new thing with Over the Edge is, while all the stuff that people love is in there, like the Kergillians is there and Mr. Throckmorton is in there and whatever, everything has been rewritten. And uh, it's not 25 years later, this is what's going on or what have you. It is, you know, I'm just going to take these same big, bold ideas I had before and and redo the details. Like I talked before about how the uh, neutralizers went from being the good guys who can show up and help you to being some poor mind-controlled guy who is fighting evil but for the wrong reason, right? And, and so everything like that, everything gets a new spin. Sure, that's super cool. So that Kickstarter, is, as we said before, that's – it's funded, but if we can get turn this podcast around pretty quickly, there'll still be a chance to jump on the very end of that, I think. So right. we'll endeavor to get that out there. Um, and then then your life is easy after that, right? You've got nothing on the horizon? or <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, honestly, I have been building up to this Kickstarter and this project for a long time. Sure. Um, so it's, it's, it is sort of all-consuming. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have more to talk about later. The big thing I have right now that one of the, the – like the one big open question for me is like, what book am I going to do next with 
with Karen Lewis, the author of Grandmother or the artist from Grandmother Fish. Yeah. So obviously that collaboration was a miracle for me. Um, we work together on a card game. So Clades and Clades Prehistoric that has all her art on it. And she does great art animals. And so, you know, now our agent is asking like, what are, what are we going to do next? And I want to do some new big idea book, preferably that touches on evolution somehow, whether it's about emotions or families or mammals or, or, or something. And so uh, we've been going back and forth with the, agent over you know which of these ideas is the best one to do next and what have you and and i think once um you know once this kickstarter is uh behind me and i'll have some breathing room then that's the the next big thing i need to tackle okay great stuff well don't stay away from rpg land for too long yeah that's right you know, no, I, I, yeah. I don't think you could at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's um, there's lots of great RPG products yet for me to do. So yeah, I'll, maybe I'll play some. No, take take some time to play some. I hear Thirteenth Age in Garanth is quite a good game. You could get yeah. some <laughs> sessions of that under your belt. Play a duck. Yeah. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> it, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Jonathan, it's been an absolute pleasure for us to have you on the podcast tonight. Thank you ever so much for for joining us um i know you've had a very busy schedule recently and it's right at the end of a pretty important kickstarter for you so you know thank you ever so much for taking the time yeah you bet uh, it's uh, been a pleasure i really appreciate people who uh you know know my background and have questions from the audience and and what have you that's uh, uh pretty fantastic yeah well you know the uk has a pretty strong community but it's big enough that we all know each other so you, know, <laughs> you could always put your arms around it, but there's, there's a there's a lot of love in the UK for some of the stuff that you published and will be publishing as well. So, so I know that this is going to get some stuff. And if we get some future questions, if you don't mind, we'll we'll fling them over to you from our audience as well. If there's any follow ups, I'm sure. That, yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to talk to you guys again and stay in contact. This has been a lot of fun. Great, Brilliant. thanks, thanks very much. much.